Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about adopting a child that has been sexually abused or that you suspect has been sexually abused. This is a topic that is hard to talk about, it, but is the reality for uh, parents oftentimes, or sometimes, not oftentimes, but sometimes, uh, that adopt from foster care and internationally. And it's something that parents need to think about both prior to adopting as well as after adopting on how to be the best parents possible and help this child heal. I think you're really going to enjoy this show. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model, and that way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also listen to shows that were recorded years ago that are what we call evergreen, that uh, have still uh, good value. Uh, The information is still the same, and uh, you can go back, and we have created a vast archive on our site. I actually don't even know the number of shows, but it's well over 300 since this show has been going on since 2007. Please go to the radio page of our website, which is on the horizontal menu at the top, uh, and you can have access to all of these, or you can just search by topic. uh, And on our resource pages, we list all the shows that are on that specific topic. It's a great resource, so please take advantage of it. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten, and we are very thankful for that, by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer does not have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for our no co- for their no-cost medication through Faring's Heartbeat program. To learn more, you can go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors. And these are organizations who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Holt International. Founded in 1956, they are a leader in the global community in finding families for children who need them and for providing the pre- and post-adoption support they need to thrive. Vista Del Mar is a licensed, accredited, nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience and with three adoption programs, Private Infant, International, and Adoption Through Foster Care. Hopscotch Adoptions, a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing children from around the world, offering home study and post-adoption support services to residents of North Carolina and New York. Adoption Connections is a California-based adoption agency working with families throughout the U.S. They are a national pioneer in open adoptions and are respected for their ethical practices, compassion, and openness to adoptive and birth families alike. 
Children's Connection is an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the U.S. The law offices of James Fletcher Thompson is a South Carolina firm committed to both adoption and assisted reproductive law. And Nightlight Christian Adoptions have been helping children connect with families for more than 50 years. They have offices from coast to coast providing international, domestic, foster, and embryo donation and adoption services. These are a few of our wonderful goal sponsors, but we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. So we ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please choose one from our directories, which you can find on our website under Find a Professional. Uh, You can search by location, services provided, years in operation, just a host of factors that we think are important And uh, when choosing. And when you choose one, the people who support us, you are supporting us, and we appreciate that. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Joseph Sparrow about adopting a child that has been sexually abused. Uh, Dr. Sparrow is a child and adolescent psychiatrist. He is an associate professor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and he is also the director of strategy and program development at the Brazelton Touchpoint Center at the Children's Hospital in Boston. He is also a syndicated columnist for the New York Times. And for uh, direct relevance to this show, he's had a lot of experience uh, with children that have been sexually abused. This is a re-airing of a show that we did several years ago. Uh, It is so powerful and so important of a topic uh, and so relevant uh, to, uh, to us today as it was back then. Uh, I loved this show back then. I loved his compassion. I loved his wisdom. And I loved the the, the sense of hope that he gives for these children and for the parents who are raising them. Um, So without further ado, please enjoy this show uh, with Dr. Joseph Sparrow. Welcome, Dr. Sparrow, to Creating a Family. Thanks for having me, Don. When we hear hear or read the words sexually abused when we are considering a child and we're looking at their file or, or hearing about the child, it can be frightening for prospective parents, and it's such a broad term that I think a lot of times that we're not even really sure what all that encompasses. So when we're talking about sexual abuse, what is considered sexual abuse? Well, I would consider sexual abuse as any form of unwanted sexual touching uh, between uh, a child and um, anybody who's able to overpower, overpower the child, either physically or psychologically. So, but that could also be another child who's say four or more years older. Okay, and and sometimes, of course, it can be um, adults as well, obviously, but it can also include uh, children. Um, so does it matter the, the what are the things that matter does it matter the degree how how hard, how much the child is affected is that dependent upon what factors uh is the type of abuse or is it the age of the child what is it that seems to make the difference as to what type of symptoms we might see well one of the variables is who is the person who has committed the sexual abuse and perhaps the most damaging is when the person is in the role of primary or one of the primary adult caregivers of the child. Because then it really completely undoes the child's sense of being able to trust and rely on caregivers and creates enormous confusion about 
who caregivers are and what their intents are and what they're supposed to do. Is this being cared for? Is this being heard? And mm-hmm. how do I tell the difference? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then it gets into the you know the fundamental trust issues, and that can interfere with children uh, being able to reestablish trust and attachment to new caregivers. Uh, here's a question we have. Uh, we have adopted a 10-year-old girl from China. She is now 11 and has been home 11 months. We now think that she may have been sexually abused at the orphanage. We have been told that she has lived at the orphanage since infancy, so we assume any abuse would have happened there. Can you or your guest give us a list of symptoms or signs that a child has been sexually abused? So I think one of the things that um, haunts uh, adoptive parents when there's limited information about the child's story before the adoption is what happened, what went on, and um, how is this going to affect our child's behavior and development. And then uh, at particularly vulnerable moments, like the approach of puberty, for example, or at times when a child's behavior seems to change or it's hard to understand, that's often the time when adoptive parents open up, try to open up, wish they could open up that black box and figure out what's inside, uh, what happened. And I think often when there are um, really no clear answers, it can be... um, an exercise in frustration, and I think the potential um, difficulty with it is that, um, you know, if, if it leads parents to um, one form of explanation for a child's behavior that they sort of close down around, uh, it may it may be that it cuts off other ways of understanding the child's behavior that would lead to um, more effective uh, ways of handling it. So in terms of uh, signs of uh, sexual abuse, uh, the most obvious are sexualized behaviors that are inappropriate to the child's age and developmental stage. Uh, and, and often um, the sexualized behaviors um, seem quite overpowering in the sense that the child uh, doesn't seem able to uh, stop them or limit them to certain times and certain places. So it can be um, masturbating uh, without being able to restrict it to the privacy of their room at certain times, although that sometimes is seen in other children who do not have a history of sexual abuse, so you can't assume that that's for sure uh, what it is. And certainly um, that kind of um, exploration of the body is, is a normal in children, but typically when you're able to tell them, you know, that's a, um, a good thing to do, you know, when you're by yourself in your room but not in public, uh, mm-hmm. they're able to um, to respond to that. Yeah, and can be redirected if they forget and, and quickly uh, uh, stop the behavior until they're in private. And, and but, but with a child who's been sexually abused, one sign might be that they're not able to do that or, or continue to, to do it in public even when they've been redirected. Right, and then other behaviors that you will see create a pretty clear sense that they've been exposed to or experienced sexual interactions that um, children their age uh, ought not to have been, um, so that the sexualized behaviors might also take place with um, their friends or peers. And, you know, while it's normal for, uh, say, for example, for a five-year-old to play doctor and to explore each other's bodies because they're just discovering 
the differences between girls' and boys' bodies, um, that kind of um, play is limited to looking and uh, really pretty limited exploratory kind of touching. Uh, when you hear about uh, young children uh, engaging in, in physical interactions that really uh, are more like adult sexual behaviors, um, that's, of course, a, a clear warning that they've either been exposed to it or um, experienced it. So would you include in the in the broad term sexual abuse children who have been exposed to have witnessed uh, adults in sexual behavior, uh, but the child itself has not been touched? Is that would that that I could imagine that that would also, especially if it's been repeated and it's graphic, that that would also impact a child in a negative way. But would that also fall under the the general term uh, sexual abuse? Well, I, I mean, I. I personally don't think it's helpful to do too much lumping of things together. I think there are lots of examples of where when we use one broad umbrella term, we find that there are so many different kinds of children and experiences underneath it that uh, it creates confusion and doesn't direct us to helpful ways of responding. And in this instance, the label of sexual abuse is um, uh, a pretty daunting one, and it's probably more helpful to have labels that are more specific so um that that is to say a, a child's been exposed to um adult sexual behavior uh, or has been exposed to pornographic material uh, could be called sexual abuse uh, instead i think i would say it would be helpful to just be specific about that experience and certainly it's sufficient to um be disruptive to a child's well-being and and development but is quite different than um, the experience of uh, repeated uh, frank um, sexual abuse by a primary caregiver from an early age. Uh, although if it's the primary caregiver who has exposed the child to uh, their own interactions with another adult or to pornographic material, um, some of the kinds of uh, effects uh, in terms of who is a caregiver and what is their job and if that's mm-hmm. taking care of me, what's hurting me, um, some of those those kinds of concerns can be similar. Does the age of the child, the age of the child when the abuse happened, does that impact healing and does it impact symptoms? Well, I think the, the symptoms will look different at different ages, both because children's capacity to make sense of what's happened to them is different and their capacity um, to express what uh, happened to them is different and also because the age at which the abuse happens is going to interfere with different kinds of necessary developmental experiences. So I think those are the different areas to think about when looking at children of different ages. For example, when sexual abuse uh, by a primary caregiver uh, that occurs repeatedly starts at a very early age, this disrupts the very basic process of a child learning about these fundamental relationships and about things like trust and care and unconditional uh, acceptance and uh, about uh, his or her safety in the world. Uh, It also means that the child then uh, will be moving through development with a kind of disruption that's going to interfere with some of the subsequent uh, kinds of developmental experiences that uh, need to take place, whereas a child who has uh, had a, a um been been free of this kind of experience until much later in life they at least have that kind of um 
uh, more solid foundation behind them. Although, say, a, a young adolescent who is for the first time uh, sexually abused by a primary caregiver who has been the same primary caregiver throughout their life will have similar um, um, foundation-shaking questions about um, what is trust and what is care and um, what are relationships that I can count on. Here's a question we have from Greg. He writes, we adopted a boy from Ethiopia. Because of a graphic picture he has drawn and a bizarre story he has told, we suspect that he may have been sexually abused. But when we have tried to seek more information from him about the picture and the story, he refuses to talk. We want to be careful that we don't plant thoughts in his head that aren't there. We just want the truth. How do we go about getting him to open up so that we know if anything harmful has happened to him? Well, you know, this is a good example of what we were talking about earlier, Don, about um, how where there's this relatively long period of um, unknown history for a child. Um, it's frightening for parents. Um, certainly, though, if the child's been in this country for long enough, they may have been exposed to confusing and disturbing material on the Internet or, or other places where pornography is uh, available. So uh, I think already it's... Um, uh, it's an example of, um, you know, turning to the unknown past prior to the adoption as an explanation when that may down, shut down sort of other possibilities that need to be considered as well. In terms of um, Greg's question about uh, how do we get him to tell us what's going on, um, I, I think there are a couple of important things to consider. And one is that a central part of the experience of sexual abuse for a child is a complete violation of their sense of control over their bodies, what happens in their interactions with others and in their world. And so that the interactions that uh, adoptive parents and others who want to help children heal from this need to reverse that experience and very explicitly give them the opportunity to uh, feel that they can reassert and regain control over their bodies and their actions. And that means uh, that there are opportunities when this comes up to uh, give the child that experience by saying, um, you're in control of um, what you tell, how much you tell, uh, when you tell, and who you talk to about it. This is um, something that you're the boss of. And, of course, parents want desperately to know what happened, uh, and sometimes they need to know urgently because it's not clear that it isn't still going on. Um, but paradoxically, if you are clear with the child that this is not something that you can extract for them and that you understand that that's not helpful to them, paradoxically, they're actually more likely to begin to feel um, more comfortable uh, and to let you know. The, the One other point about this is... Um, one of the symptoms of abuse is the re-triggering of the memory of the abuse itself. And that can be terribly disturbing and incapacitating for children. And uh, so one of the ways of helping children who've had this experience is to um, try to protect safe spaces where there aren't reminders or triggers of the abuse. And so part of why they may exert control over, I don't want to talk about this now, is because they're 
with their parent in a place where none of this happened. And simply by talking about it, it brings them back to that moment and to all of those intense feelings. And then it feels like it's here too. It's contaminated the safe space. Um, so that taking great care um, to conduct the conversations when the child is ready and, and wants to be a participant and to check in with him about, you know, is this does this feel like a good place and is this a good time? And not bringing it up um, at more sort of random, scattered times and places so that it might feel like this could come up and I could have these memories come back to me anywhere, anytime. How important is it for uh, parents to know the details in order to help their child heal? Well, you know, I think in many cases um, parents won't know the details. And for that matter, in many cases um, uh, professional therapists won't know the details either. And at the very least, they may not know them uh, for a good long while, uh, while there are plenty of opportunities um, to help the child. And in a way, um, the child's experience of what happened and the ways in which it has been upsetting to them um, is probably uh, of much more immediate importance. So in my understanding, you're right, that you can still help the child heal without knowing the specifics because you can deal with how they're dealing with the abuse. Right. So, you know, parents want to know exactly what happened and what hurt. You know, it's sort of like when your child um, falls down and gets a scrape. You, you want to look and see, is there dirt in it? How deep is it? Is it, you know, does it look like it's going to close up by itself? So, of course, parents want to do that. But I think where to look at the hurt doesn't have to be exactly you know, what kind of sexual act occurred, but it can be uh, where is the hurt in terms of um, some of the symptoms that we've been talking about? Is the child able to form relationships with other people where he really can feel safe, really can feel trust, really can feel clear that in this relationship I'm not going to get hurt and I will be respected? And so to look at, look, uh, at those kinds of places where the hurt is, uh, maybe more helpful because that's that's where the um, support is going to be. Or to look at this issue of does he get these uh, flashbacks or experiences of memories being triggered and when and where um, do those occur and how can we help him uh, learn to control those and to um, pull himself back when, uh, when when that happens to him. Here's a question from BJ. She says, we feel called to adopt or foster a child in our foster care system. We are in the process of taking the required classes now. We have three children, ages 5, 7, and 10 already. It seems like we have to be prepared that the child we bring into our home may have been abused, including sexual abuse. We are wondering if this is a good idea for our existing children. What types of behavior should we expect? Does it depend on the gender of the child? And she asks some several other questions, but I think the gist of her questions are, um, how are siblings in a family potentially affected by having a new sibling uh, that acts out sexually, um, which is uh, due to prior abuse, or and, and has some of the any of these symptoms associated with um, prior abuse, sexual abuse? Well, I mean, we we talked about one of the symptoms being sexualized behavior with um, other children, whether the same age or older or, or younger, and so. Um, clearly, that's a risk if a child has been sexually abused, and I think that uh, potential adoptive parents need to go into it eyes wide open. And, uh, you know, quite commonly, 
um, parents who have established a family that's got years of its own existence before they consider uh, adopting a child or adopting another child feel caught in this kind of dilemma. And I think it's really important uh, at this point to really deeply ask, well, what is this call that we feel we've had and where is it coming from and uh, what kind of support will we have to heed it and follow through with it over time? Because often what happens is at some point uh, when the child, the new adoptive child's behavior uh, seems as if it could be potentially threatening to the well-being of the family or one of the children, parents ask themselves, why did we do this? And more specifically, don't we have an obligation to protect the children we already had? Mm -hmm. And how can we have made a decision that puts them at risk? Don't we need to reverse that decision? But then, once that decision's been made, if they decide they've got to um, you know, bring the child back, um, what does that do to the family? What does that yeah. do to the family in terms of the the children who remains understanding of what holds the family together and what the relationships are. So I think that when there's this kind of doubt, it's important to be very realistic and to try to play out the scenarios and say, um, how, how would we respond and what would we do and could we live with these various possible scenarios actually happening? And perhaps one thing they could do is consider the age that they are open to um, it seems they have a 5, 7, and 10-year-old. Um, it might be easier if they're adopting a younger child uh, than their youngest child if, they are, uh, if the child has been uh, abused and sexually abused so that uh, that power differential you described earlier would be less likely to happen. Yeah, I think that that's a really helpful suggestion and a lot more helpful, I think, than gender because I think it... Um, it's a risk with both genders, and um, you know, people I suppose might imagine that boys would be a greater risk for this. But I think that you know, girls who have been sexually abused um, can um, also be um, sexualized uh, in mm -hmm. ways where this would be a problem too. So I think that the idea of um, a, a child who is so much younger that whatever sexualized behavior would not be um, a kind of um, invitation for the the um, the other children in the family, and the, and those idea. other children would be uh, would be able to be explained that this is inappropriate behavior, and that it's and, and they would be less likely to be they would be able to see it as 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 inappropriate behavior and not as uh, and, and not be drawn into it perhaps. Right, and that's where I think this family would need to ask themselves: Are we? okay about having those kinds of conversations with our children or would even having to talk about that make us feel um, that we had somehow wronged our children by introducing this this wrinkle. Mm -hmm. and, and I should add that this is not just an issue of children in foster care because uh, children throughout the world who have not had an adult to protect them are, are quite vulnerable to all forms of abuse. So it's... Um, I think there's a misconception that that children in our foster care system are more at risk when in fact um, children throughout the world especially you know children who have spent a good portion of time in uh, institutions um you know children need adults to protect them and they need 
as much as possible one-on-one protections, and that doesn't happen. How do you protect yourself or your spouse from allegations of sexual abuse if your child either acts out sexually or tells people uh, he or she was abused in your home? I, I hear this not infrequently. I don't know how common it is, but I, I, I think it must be more common than we might suspect that a child who has been abused uh, might, uh, number one, people who would see the child's behavior might assume that they're being abused in the home, or the child um, wants the attention or is mad at the parents or whatever and, and tells uh, others that the child. Is there a way? Well, I mean, well and there's, a, there's, another, you know, there's another possibility there, which gets exactly to what we were talking about before, is that a child who's been sexually abused um, is often very confused about um, adult caregivers and their intent. And so uh-huh. they, they may really have a hard time believing that any adult wouldn't do this to them. And they may have a hard time uh, being clear that someone who takes care of you actually could take care of you without doing this to you or without having the intent or the wish to do this to you. So how do you protect yourself as a uh, as a parent? Because it can be, I mean, it can be devastating. I mean, an allegation of sexual abuse, uh, I mean, it can be, it can wipe out your reputation. It can also become a huge legal hassle. Well, I certainly don't think as a as a non-lawyer that I can give advice about legal protection, and it does seem... Um, well, I don't know that there would daunting. be a legal protection you could take yeah. in advance. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know that there is, um, and I, I am not sure what one could necessarily count on as a uh, an adoptive parent um, to guarantee that this kind of... Um, uh, allegation wouldn't come up for the very reasons we've been talking about that um even with uh really superb care and uh, genuine love a child who's struggling with this question about uh relationships um isn't going to get all the way to clarity before going through a lot of doubt and a lot of confusion um in in many instances so um I'm not sure that there's uh, a way of protecting against the allegation. I think that there are some ways of um, protecting against um, further confusion for the child. Um, What would those ways be? Well, I I think, you know, there's one whole area, which is, um, you know, physical contact within families, because obviously there's healthy um touching uh in families between uh parents and and uh young children um that children need and and crave and yet children who have been sexually abused also get confused about that and um can't turn it into sexualized behavior and so sometimes parents wonder well what do i do when you know, she wants a hug or she wants to sit in my lap, and then she responds with these behaviors that clearly show a sexualized experience of it. And and those are times where I think, you know, parents can be clear and say, you know, this is the way that you and I touch each other and may have to sort of lean toward the side of the least, you know, the least um, likely to be stimulating sorts of contact, like, you know, a hand on the shoulder or holding hands or... Um, a side hug versus a frontal yeah, hug. Yeah, sometimes you, depending on the age of the child and the experience, I think paying attention to that and and it's tough because it can feel like depriving of the child of 
um, something that they need and is natural, but it isn't what they need if their response to it is clearly sexualized because they're not they're not receiving it and experiencing it in the way that um, it is offered to them and in the way that they would need to. So that that's one um, that's one example. I think also um, when these kinds of issues come up about touching or about sexuality, I think you know frankness and clarity and watching for how much the child can handle by looking at their nonverbal behavior and their facial expressions and then sort of holding back when um, it looks like it's too much information of them. Those kinds of uh, practices of, you know, having things being clear and stated and out in the open. Um, we have a question that's, let me read it because it's directly onto this. This is from Renee. She says, we are the parents of five, two of whom were adopted at four and five from foster care. They have been home for two years now. They are birth siblings. We are a very affectionate family, but our two newest kids have a hard time when we try to hug them or even touch them. They don't like it when we hug each other or when my husband gives me an affectionate kiss. Nothing graphic, just a sweet type kiss. We aren't sure whether we should try to desensitize them or change our family's affectionate nature. If we were to desensitize them, I don't know how to go about it. Also, is it harmful for kids to go through life not being hugged and kissed by their parents? I did, by the way, email her back and ask if she knew if their children had had any form of abuse, and she said they, they do, that they do not know, and this is the only behavior they've seen that would give any indication that perhaps there might be. Yeah, and it's again, it's it's not clear. It's hard to know. It it may be that um, that that is the case. It may be that this is more about their um, experience of earlier disrupted relationships and. Um, lack of certainty about um, being close to people and being able to count on people staying in your life despite you know despite the, the possibility that they may not have been sexually abused because of other experiences mm-hmm. i i think um um i think you can't force acceptance on children um and and again i i think this may be an instance we're bringing it out in the open and not having sort of painfully long and detailed conversations about it, but just some clarity um, uh, would be helpful. So I think to be able to acknowledge it and say, you know, I get it, this looks like this is something that bothers you and, you know, we don't want to do things that um, are upsetting to you. Um, and then maybe to say, you know, in in some families doing this and then saying what it is is just a, you know, simple a uh, little way of um, saying I love you, and then um, not making an issue of it. I, I can't imagine trying to uh, force them on it. One could say at some point um, that might be something um, that um, you would like to, and, and you know, if and when you're ready, then there's plenty of time. I, I don't think pressure is, is going to help. Mm-hmm. I think it's also hard for families to sort of change those really natural uh, spontaneous kinds of behaviors, but they might need to either, you know, just tone it down a little bit or to save it for times when these children aren't around. And it sounds like this is a fairly recent adoption, so I, I picture that as other parts of uh-huh. these children's sense of being deeply connected to this family really coalesce. Um, some of these kinds of natural, spontaneous expressions of affection um might be uh, easier for the these children to accept and and as you point out uh finding other ways to touch them that would 
feel comfortable to them. Maybe it's a hand on the shoulder or maybe it's a pat on the back or a ruffle of the head, uh, you know, uh, messing up their hair or, you know, uh, tweaking their ear or something that, that feels comfortable to them where you're, you are touching them in some way, but that's a way that they feel like is is comfortable. Before we leave the uh, conversation that we were having before about how to protect yourself or your spouse from allegations, one thought would be to, uh, if you have are working with an agency or a uh, uh, social worker, um, to let the social worker know that it is a concern um, that you have. Uh, let them know up front that you suspect that there may be a sexual abuse and that if you have a concern that the child may say something, um, say something in advance so that people are prepped for perhaps this. And quite frankly, you may be surprised a social worker may very well uh, be uh, anticipating that because uh, she might also, or he or she might have known the child. So know that that's a possibility that could be coming down, and that may be some protection that you might have. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility, and today we're talking about parenting a child that you know or you suspect has been sexually abused. Our guest is Dr. Joshua Sparrow. He is Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Director of Special Initiatives at the Brazelton Touchpoint Center at the Children's Hospital in Boston. Now, we've talked about the need to make your home a, a comfortable and a safe place for children who have been abused, sexually and otherwise. What are some practical things families can do to make this happen? Um, you, you mentioned about the touching, being careful that uh, any touching or hugging or kissing is um, is respectful of whatever the child's comfort level is. Um, are there other things that parents can do to try to make their house a safer place for uh, for a child? Well, one of the uh, areas where uh, symptoms of sexual abuse can show up is um, when over the course of a day children are naturally um, more in contact with their bodies or um, uh, where there's um, nudity, like simply changing clothes or using the bathroom or taking a bath or mm-hmm. uh, also getting ready for bed at night because often that's a time when sexual abuse may have occurred. And I, so I think to be ready for um, more fear and anxiety and resistance at those times. And there, of course, it's another opportunity to give the child a sense of control as a kind of repair for the experience of loss of control that they've had if they have been sexually abused. Um, So um, you may have to approach these times of day by giving them choices and options and helping them really pay attention to, now, what's the way that you can do this that's going to make you um, feel most comfortable? So even if there hasn't been a a clear history of sexual abuse, um, they're in control and they know that you understand and they know that unlike the perpetrator, if they had experienced sexual abuse, you're not trying to make them uncomfortable with their bodies. You're not trying to alter their relationship to their bodies, which is one way of thinking about part of what happens. Um, Another is if there are other children, I think separate bedrooms uh, are important. Um, And I also would, uh, I think, think twice about um, sleepovers and overnight camp because those are times of vulnerability, particularly if there's been sexualized behavior already observed. And then there are certain settings where 
I think children are more vulnerable because um, uh, they're um, uh, more exposed, and those would be things like um, health club or school locker rooms and showers or certain organizations where there may be a greater likelihood of um, uh, predators, frankly, and um, children who've already been sexually abused are vulnerable to um, to repeat uh, experiences. The other the other thing um, uh, that parents can do just on a practical level is if you think about this as a kind of loss of control over the experience of one's body and uh, a kind of altered experience of one's body, giving kids opportunities to um, to use their body in ways that uh, feel good, feel powerful, and allow them to express themselves. Uh, there's a, a concept of the body self, which is this idea that part of the way that we know who we are and part of the way we have a sense of who we are is by our awareness of our bodies. And that's part of what gets uh, affected by um, a history of sexual abuse. So uh, things like dance or martial arts or uh, sports, not for the sake of performance or competition or being the best, but for this kind of um, healthy re-experiencing of the body can be um, really quite therapeutic. What a fascinating idea. Um yeah, and even if your child is not particularly great and, and that's not their love, you can find something, like you say, dance, martial arts, something where they've... Fascinating. Uh, here's a, a, a wonderful question that I'm glad we got. This is um, She's asked not to use her name. We believe, or maybe I should say no, that our 11-year-old son was sexually abused by his first family before he came to us at age 7. He acts out sexually with other children. He is in therapy, and with close supervision, he is doing very good. We have homeschooled him, but are thinking about enrolling him in fifth grade at the local elementary school next year. We are trying to decide whether we should tell the school about his past. We would also like to get him involved now with Boy Scouts since he is doing so much better, and we think it would be wonderful for him. However, we have the same questions about whether we should notify them. We want to be responsible, but we also know that people will make assumptions about him and might even have a negative reaction to him if they knew he was the victim of sexual abuse. Um, she raises a, a couple of different issues. One is the uh, idea of whether something like Boy Scouts or even schools, since they've had uh, success apparently with homeschooling, uh, would be good for their child. He is 11. That's the first question that I'd like to talk about. Then I'd also like to talk about who you should notify, both to be responsible but, but also to be protective of your child. But first let's take the first one about um, um, enrolling your child in school uh, if if Apparently, he has had some issues with acting out uh, sexually, but he's, but under close supervision, is doing well. School and Boy Scouts. And... Oh, that's a really tough one. I'd be interested in knowing what your thoughts are. I mean, I, my my concerns about informing the school is that there's going to be variability from one school to another and within schools about um, how to understand this and how to respond to it. And I talked earlier about the sense of privacy and safe spaces that these children need. And um, part of that is also the sense that this experience of sexual abuse does not have to define who they are, how they're perceived, and uh, what their lives can be. And so my worry is that if, you know, many people in their worlds 
have in the forefront of their thoughts this idea about a child, and often the history of sexual abuse takes up a lot of room in people's thoughts because it's just so disturbing mm-hmm. and because sometimes exactly. it's so unclear what it means, uh, that it could, there are a lot of ways in which it could get in the way of the child's development, and aside from the sort of more obvious um, overreacting or it's sort of being spoken about and then coming back to the child or to other people who bring it back to the child, this idea of the child being looked at in this way I think ends up running the risk of being like a mirror that's held up to the child and reflects back to the child, you know, a limited sense of uh, who he is and, you know, not enough room for all of the other things about what he's experienced and who he is and his potential. Um, so so th- those are my concerns about um, uh, sharing with a school. I, I honestly don't know if the parents are under any obligation uh, to do that, um, and um, but certainly there are all kinds of other pieces of private information that parents have a right to um, to keep, keep as private. Right. I don't know. I don't know. I'd be curious what your thoughts are about this, Don. Well, you know, it, this is a hard one. I guess obviously, and this would probably go without saying, he is seeing a therapist. So I, I would think that uh, bringing the therapist in would be uh, in, in to part of these discussions would be very good. Another uh, another thing is that I would wonder. What's the child want? Is he is he the one who's pressuring to uh, go back, or go back, or be enrolled for the first time? Either way, to stop homeschooling, uh, is he the one pressuring to do that? Is he the one pressuring to be boy in, in Boy Scouts? And if so, that might change my. It seems to me that that would be important if the child is wanting it, and then perhaps setting up some um, ways to, to supervise him, or, or, or especially when he first goes in, maybe uh, increase the amount of time uh, he sees his therapist, anticipating problems in advance. But if he's not the one pushing for it, assuming that the parents are in a situation that they could continue to homeschool, I wonder if at age 11 or through middle school is the time you would want to particularly change the status quo. Now, I realize uh, that... Uh, Homeschooling can be quite demanding, and there may be uh, reasons why the family might want not to be doing it. But if it's working and and he's improving, then why make the change um, if you don't have to, unless he's the one pushing for it? And then certainly, if he is the one pushing for any of these, to set up very, very uh, clear expectations of what will be accepted and what won't be accepted uh, and remind him and have his permission beforehand that geez, he's going to be reminded each time. And, and I guess obviously it would also depend, uh, she says he's doing much better under close supervision. I don't really know what that means, how close of a supervision, because obviously in school and in Boy Scouts he won't be getting very close supervision. Uh, and Boy Scouts brings up the whole issue of camping and sleeping over. Uh, and all those things I think are important to, to know where he's at on his self-control and where he's at on on integrating uh, his past abuse and, and controlling his own behavior. Um, so I guess it seems to me that all of those things uh, would have to be factored in. Um, I just know that middle school can be, of course she's saying he would be in fifth grade, so that would be the last in elementary school, but middle school can be such a tumultuous time. Um, and there's so many other outlets for uh uh, social interaction, and if uh, I would assume if they've been homeschooling for a while, they know of this. But I think it is a myth to assume that homeschool children 
lack in social uh, outlets because I don't think that's the case at all uh, in most places now. But again, I I can understand that there may be other reasons why they would, um, not the least of which that perhaps the, um, whoever was homeschooling needs to be working. So I, you know, there's a, a lot there. You know, I think another um, thing that happens to children who have been sexually abused is they. Um, have a sexualized experience of relationships more generally, and it can be hard for them to be in relationships um, where they feel really clear that it's not sexual and that that's not a part of it. And so, explain what you mean by that. Well, um, it may be hard to imagine, but I, you know, I think that that, that children who had experience of sexual abuse may sort of walk. Um, through each day looking at people sort of imagining that if there's interaction with them a sexual interaction is part of what could happen and that's a you know it's a pretty um scary and overwhelming thought for anybody who hasn't um been through it but it's just a very different kind of perception of people so i, I just raise that because I, I i i wonder along the lines of what you're saying you know if this child has had more kind of gradual opportunities to begin to make relationships with children his age um, and perhaps children who would be at the school that someday he might be ready to go, maybe in high school, but but children who are now in middle school so that, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the family and the therapist could get a sense of how well he does as they, you know, very gradually back off supervision and see what yeah, happens. That, that, and also so that yeah. he can have... Um, uh, a, a more consolidated experience over time of relationships, of friendships, where um, it's clear what it is, and it's not like the the experiences he had with his um, first family. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would think, and and also, uh, if it were gradual, uh, he would have more experience uh, being able to control his behavior and uh, integrate what he's learning in therapy, uh, and that if you know. It might be a lot to throw him into school and scouting and a lot of other things all at the same time. Um, anyway, here's a um, a question from L and S. She says, we are a lesbian couple thinking about adopting from foster care. Would we be a logical home for a girl that has been, been abused by a man? Is this an area where same-sex families might have an edge, all other things being equal? And, and I'd like to expand their question into talking about the gender of the person who did the abuse and the gender of the child and, and how that might play into how the child acts out and and how one can protect the child. But let's we'll address their question first. Yeah, so um, certainly uh, one of the symptoms that is seen of sexual abuse in a child is fear of individuals who in some way remind the child of the abuser in one of the obvious similarities is simply gender or, you know, age and gender. So many children who have been sexually abused by a man of a certain age are, you look really quite frightened um, when they um, are in the presence of um, a male who's roughly in that age range. Um so uh, you know, I, it's a tough question. I and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of different opinions about this. I, I don't know whether or not there would be an edge. I could picture, you know, uh, women in general having an edge over men 
uh, in helping a little girl who's been sexually abused by a man and is afraid of other men might have an edge in terms of simply helping them relax and feel calm uh, in the moment in all kinds of settings, but having an edge in terms of uh, having her become a permanent member of the family and her development over the long term um, is less clear to me because um, regardless of what her sexual orientation ends up being, gradually being able to discover that the person who uh, abused her is the person who abused her and is completely separate from other people that she encounters uh, and gradually learning that she can develop the skills to figure out who to trust and how to know who to trust. Mm -hmm. Um, And that uh, some men are trustworthy. Yeah, it seems seems like it's important. And so I I don't, you know, I I don't know is that – a, uh, th- that two women would would have an easier time with that than um, a man and a woman, or for that matter, two two men. Although certainly the initial phase, if this little girl is really frightened of men in, in general, you know that, that initial phase might be um, a little bit less scary for her. But uh, on the other hand, you know it might it might be harder for her to figure out who she needs to be afraid of and who she doesn't in in, in you know among men. If um, um, if she doesn't have a chance for um, uh, interactions with them, so if this couple has lots of friends and relatives who are male who are deeply mm-hmm. involved in their lives, that you know that that might then afford those kinds of opportunities. And we encourage uh, same-sex couples to do just that: uh, make certain their children have um, the opposite gender um, role models, so it would allow them to. Um, uh, slowly introduce the, um, in this case, if it was a man that was the abuser, uh, slowly introduce men to the child's life. You know, why is it that some children are scarred badly by sexual abuse and others seem to be able to cope and get on with life? You know, I worry a little when we talk about, you, you mentioned it earlier, that that when, we, when a child has a label of having been sexually abused, we... We step back and, and it's like that child then becomes marked for life. It's the you know the big S on the forehead, um, and and I and I don't know that that's it seems that that's so detrimental to children and it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and some kids seem to be able to truly just move past it. What why is that? And then others are so badly damaged. Well, I I think that that's such an important point, and I'm really grateful that you brought it up, Don, because one of my biggest worries about the treatment for children who have been sexually abused is um, that unintentionally, in some instances, it may end up um, kind of shrinking the child's sense of himself or herself to be um, the person who had this experience, rather than expanding their sense of to include all of the other things about them and all of the other experiences they've had uh, so that they can put the sexual uh, abuse experience into perspective mm-hmm. that allows them to free all of this up. And I would think of that as being part of what happens um, when families and therapists work together and are successful, is that the child's able to um, look at this differently. And, and that was part of my concern about the, the question about the school, is if 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 those around the child are looking at the child as if, well, this sort of changes the child's prospects and defines who he is in some way, mm-hmm. whether they're aware of that view or not, 
is that as you say, and I agree with you, it, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy if those are the only kind of mirrors that we offer to children to um, to look at themselves. And in, in terms of uh, the, the variability in terms of how children do, well, uh, some of it I think has to do with um, the the variables in the experience that we talked about earlier, what age it happens at, how often it happens, and um, uh, who the perpetrator was. But I don't think any of those are absolutes because I have known um, uh, children who have had uh, probably what we think of as the worst kind of combinations of those variables, repeated sexual abuse by a father from uh, very early in life, who um, have... um, been able to heal and um, make healthy and rewarding relationships um, and invest themselves in in their lives. So I I don't think that any of it is um, necessarily um, uh, predictive at all. And and then there's going to be um, the quality of all of the other experiences that um, offer children opportunities to heal and grow. And this is where the point you made about um, really being careful not to uh, think of this as a scar uh, or as defining in some ways mm-hmm. just really critical. And unfortunately, adopted kids have that in spades anyway. People, it, There is an assumption that particularly children adopted from foster care or adopted at an older age abroad, there, uh, and in, of the two, I'm afraid that, uh, that that children adopted from foster care have more of a stigma associated with their exposures, uh, and and with being adopted and and being damaged goods. And we we really have to fight that because it is so not true. Um, what type of of therapy is most effective? To help children and families, and by that I mean you know, individual therapy, family therapy, are, are what type of therapy works, and um, and then how do you find a therapist who's trained to work with children who have been abused? Well, um, you know, in thinking back to some of these really um, searching questions that parents have written, and it's very clear that parents, including adoptive parents need um, guidance. Um, There are all kinds of uh, really important concerns and questions that they have uh, that they need someone who's faced these questions before uh, can talk over with them. Um, And and there are all kinds of opportunities for helping the child heal every day without acting like a therapist that would be lost opportunities um, in many families without having attention drawn to them. So for sure, you know, ongoing parent guidance um, by a professional who might be a social worker, might be a psychologist, might be a psychiatrist who's um, had experience working with um, uh, children who've been uh, sexually abused and their parents. Uh, and then um, their you know, the individual therapy for the child can be helpful and it will take different forms at different ages and depending on the nature of the child's experience um, and the child's strengths that there are to build on as much as the child's symptoms. Um, Sometimes, uh, you know, you can't change the past with medication. There are symptoms that are so um, incapacitating uh, and so disruptive of the child's functioning. Uh, Sometimes um, there is a role for um, medication, although I personally would be you know, very conservative about that, and certainly not 
have that be the only treatment because there are so many other important ways of helping. So for very young children, um, the, the therapy may involve um, storytelling, uh, which gives the child, again, a sense of control because I get to decide what the story is, who's in it, and what happens, and it gives the therapist a window into the child's experience and the way the child makes sense of that experience and then gives them a chance to try to bring in these other perspectives on what happened and why, even if it's all really, if it, even if it's all focused on the dolls or the stuffed animals and doesn't ever, you know, openly um, get connected for the child to what happened, the, the child experiences on that level anyway. Um, for For children between um, the ages of, say, roughly 6 and 11 developmentally, um, it's it's often really, really tough to talk about this. And I think, you know, without wanting to be specific, because every child is different, you know, a focus on becoming competent in managing their feelings and controlling themselves is, mm-hmm. you know, often what they care about most, because at that age they, they really want to learn how to be good at stuff, Mm-hmm. Um, and are sort of getting past that age where, you know, they were too little and frustrated by that. Um, so, so the focus of the therapy has obviously got to be um, adjusted to the child's individual temperament and their experience, and to their developmental stage as well. Let me throw out a couple of resources before we're coming to the end now, I, and I want to make sure I get these out. There are a, uh, any number of really good resources out there. One of which is the website stopitnow.com, and uh, that is devoted to the prevention and the healing of, of uh, child abuse. There's another one called childhelp.org, which is generally uh, focused on child abuse in general, not uh, sexual abuse. Stop It Now is focused uh, exclusively on sexual abuse. Child Help is focused on all forms of child abuse. And there's a great uh, 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 pamphlet that's available from online. Uh, from Child Welfare, uh, which is um, our uh, part of the Health and Human Services, and that's titled Parenting a Child Who Has Been Sexually Abused, A Guide for Foster and Adoptive Parents. Uh, all of those are wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Joshua Sparrow, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. To get more information on Dr. Sparrow or on the Brazelton Touchpoint Center, uh, you can go to their website, which is Brazelton Touchpoints with an S, org. This show will be archived on the 2011 Big List at the radio page of creatingafamily.org, and it's also available for a download as a podcast from iTunes. To stay in touch with the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog topic and show topic, sign up for our weekly newsletters at creatingafamily.org. Next week's show, March 16th, will be on special issues faced by same-sex gay families. The U.N. estimates that there are 143 million orphans in the world, including 130,000 currently available for adoption in the U.S. foster care system. These kids, as well as the millions of older kids throughout the world, deserve a home. To get more information about U.S. kids waiting for a family, go to Adoption Resources page of the creatingafamily.org, where we include links to various photo listings of some of these kids. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. 
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.